Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About 6,000 years ago, around the time when farming and cuneiform writing were invented, a curious plant was discovered. It had some impressive qualities. It could grow in rough terrain, it could repel insects, and you didn't even have to care for it that much. But the best part was how it made people feel. Lots of ancient civilizations thought it was a gift from God, and they used it as a medicine. And that love lasted for thousands of years. In the early 20th century, the founder of Johns Hopkins Hospital called the plant God's own medicine. But the plant seeds are used to make a drug that last year alone killed about 13,000 Americans. The story of heroin, which comes from the opium poppy, isn't actually unique. Sometimes, discoveries we think are good for us turn out to wreak havoc on our lives. Paul Offit is a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he's tried to understand how scientific discovery can lead to tragedy. He's the author of the book, Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. And he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. Paul, thanks for being here. Thank you. So uh, let's stick with that story of heroin for a minute. It was shocking to me that once upon a time, heroin was sold as an over-the-counter drug, meaning like it's not a big deal. You don't need to get a prescription for it. People thought it was pretty good for you. They gave it to kids. How did we get to that place where people were, you know, taking heroin and it was okay? That's a great question. I think what ended up happening is the company that made it, Bayer, which also made aspirin and made aspirin the same year, which was 1895. Um, When they made aspirin, aspirin was because they were worried that aspirin could cause inflammation of the stomach, so-called gastritis. That was available by prescription only. They made heroin in the same year. And for about 30 years, heroin was available over the counter. The American Medical Association embraced it, used it to treat a variety of things. But very soon we found out that it was enormously addictive. And did it come right off the market when people found out that it was incredibly addictive? By 1924, we passed an act in the United States basically making the sale of heroin illegal and so it went underground. And interestingly, underground in the early uh, 1900s in America meant Jewish mobsters, people like Meyer Lansky and Dutch Schultz and and Legs Diamond, Arnold Rossi, and all those guys were Jewish mobsters. Full Mm. disclosure, my grandfather's brother also fell fell into the same category. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the term that they use, this was interesting to me, the term that they use, and it's a slang term. You're not going to find this in Leo Rostin's Joy of Yiddish book. But the, the slang term that was used was schmecker, was the term for addict. And so heroin was referred to as schmeck, which was then anglicized to smack. Hmm. So uh, you talk about a series of drugs, uh, morphine, heroin, Oxycontin. They were all developed to try to fix a problem. And in the end, the fix ended up being at least as bad as the problem. Does that say something to you about science, about medicine, about, I don't know, the pharmaceutical industry? Like, how could that have happened that you had these series of drugs and people thought, yep, heroin, that'll fix it? 
Yeah, I think it's an example of medical hubris. I think we, we continue to believe, wrongly, that we could separate pain relief from addiction. And so you know, opium users became opium addicts. Then we thought, okay, we'll purify opium's main ingredient, which is morphine. And because right. it's pure, we can give less of it. And so opium right. addicts became morphine addicts. Then we'll, we'll, we'll sort of chemically modify it so it crosses the blood-brain barrier easier, more easily. And that was heroin. And so morphine addicts became heroin addicts. Right. And then we took another component of opium, which was thebane, chemically modified it to form oxycodone. And so then we became opioid addicts. You know, we just continue not to learn this lesson. And interestingly, there was an article last week stating that that uh, researchers believe that they had finally uh, separated pain relief from addiction. But I'm telling you, after 2,500 years, we should at least be skeptical of quotations like that. How did you get started thinking about this whole genre of scientific advances that just went astray? I mean, it, people thought they were advances, but they turned out so wrong. My, my expertise is generally in vaccines. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that invented a vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine. So I always watch the, you know, the difficulties in creating biologicals. Uh, vaccines are a perfect example. You know, the, the polio vaccine that was made in 1955 that was heralded as, you know, groundbreaking. Jonas Salk was a hero. Right. Um, there was a company that made that vaccine badly. Cutter Laboratories failed to inactivate the polio virus. So inadvertently, 120,000 children in the United States were injected with live, fully virulent Whoa. polio virus. Oh 40,000 developed, uh, you know, developed abortive or short-lived polio about 200 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. It was one of the worst biological disasters in this country's history, and that's always true. You know, it's medicine always advances slowly and painfully, and mm. um, it's true of any advance. Any advance always has some something associated with it, which is uh, the downside. So, um, okay, we talked about drugs and addiction. I want to talk about something else very different uh, that touches, I, I would say, every American's life. And it's the issue of fat. We have heard in the last few years this idea that maybe low fat, you know, that had been talked about for decades and decades, maybe that's actually not so great to go on a low fat diet and to focus on that. You look at how we got this wrong for so many decades, how we became so in love with the idea um, of low fat, of getting saturated fat out of our diet. Explain to me how that happened. Well, the way things sadly happen in medicine sometimes, which is people just simply uh, make definitive statements based on limited data, and, and that's what happened here. I mean, there was a, a very influential diet guru, if you will, in the 1970s named Ansel Keys, who said that we should eat less fat and, and that we should restrict, ultimately, fats to less than 30% of the total calories that we take, and, and McGovern actually set up a task force that said the same thing. But we learn as we go. Yeah, but okay. If somebody thinks that they, if a scientist or a doctor thinks, look, I've looked at the data and I, I can see what it shows. And in this case, low fat diets are, are clearly better diets. And then they go and tell that to people. How do you get ever get out of that cycle? I mean, if the person is malintentioned, you could imagine, well, you just find a well-intentioned person. But if the person is well-intentioned and believes that the data is sufficient, aren't we always going to be under that sort of I don't know, impression that we have plenty of data until the next tranche of data comes in and shows us, oops, actually, butter, not as bad as margarine. 
Right. I think that's true. I mean, you, you and I would both agree that 100 years from now, we're going to know much more about science and health than we know now. But we don't want to believe that's true, especially when it comes to issues of our own health. We want to believe that we know everything we need to know right now to make the, to make the right decision right now. But that's not true. Obviously, there are some medicine has limits. I think we're going to learn as we go. So there's always some degree of uncertainty, which is difficult for people, which is why I think at some level we're drawn to that guru. I mean, like a Deepak Chopra or Mehmet Oz, who set themselves up as all knowing. And mm. that is very reassuring to us, even though it's not true. So then do you think that there's like a moral to these mistakes in terms of that we could avoid them more or no, it's impossible. We can't. I guess my moral is this. I, I do think science gets it right. Uh, over time, science will get it right because if your data are correct, over time re they will be reproduced and you'll shown to be shown to be correct. But if you're incorrect, um, then you'll you'll be shown to be incorrect. So, for example, somebody like Brian McMahon, who who wrote a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine claiming that excess coffee drinking caused pancreatic cancer. I mean, Brian McMahon was, was a Harvard Public Health uh, uh, scientist. You know, New England Journal of Medicine is arguably the best of the clinical journals. That was wrong, and, and time showed that it was wrong. That doesn't mean that you can't trust science. I think it means that you should be skeptical of scientists because scientists get it wrong all the time. But science doesn't get it wrong. And I think that's an important distinction. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Paul Offit, a doctor at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and author of the book Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. Um, do you think that the scientific or the medical community should be more cautious? Maybe should slow things down a little bit. Maybe that would uh, hinder progress a little. But maybe it would mean that we got things right a higher percentage of the time. I think we should be skeptical of, of the single study. We shouldn't fall into the single study trap. So, for example, in the late 1990s, a British re researcher claimed that the combination of measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism. The media was all over that, that uh, publication and assumed incorrectly that it was right. It was an extraordinary claim. If you look closely at that paper, you could see that it was based on essentially no evidence. And 17 studies ultimately showed that it was wrong. But we jumped all over that. I mean, parents chose not to vaccinate their children. Right. There were outbreaks of, of measles both in the United Kingdom and, and Europe and in this country because of that. That single study, and, and you can give many examples of that. I mean, there, there are Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for lobotomies uh, as, as a discovery. Nobel Prizes awarded for a worm that supposedly caused cancer, which wasn't true. Um, so I think we should just take a breath when, when an extraordinary claim uh, comes out. But to that issue of vaccines, a couple of years ago, there was a poll by Pew that showed that 9% uh, of Americans don't believe that the measles vaccine is safe. Now, clearly, as you say, the paper that, that talked about that was discredited, and there's been lots of work since then to show that. But if you are highlighting scientific mistakes where only maybe decades later people figure out, whoa, we got that wrong, and there were these big implications of that, how do you square that for somebody who's not as sure about, you know, giving their child the MMR vaccine? Well, what I try and do in the book anyway is to have sort of each of these seven stories ends up with a lesson at the end. So what did we learn from this? It's kind of like an Aesop's fable for science uh, lovers. Mm. But no, I think what, what you said earlier was interesting, you know, that they didn't believe that the uh, measles-containing vaccine was safe. Um, it's not a belief system. Uh, this is one of the, the joys of science for me. It's an evidence-based system. And you don't have to believe whether or not MMR uh, vaccine causes autism because you have a mountain of evidence that shows that it doesn't. It's a fact, much as evolution or gravity is a fact. So it's not a belief system any more than evolution is a belief system or climate change is a belief system. Those are facts. 
Do you think there was a time when we created more problems via science? Like when you think about the problems that you talk about, heroin and getting things wrong about diet, you know, these, these effects ripple out to millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. Do you think our science is at a place where maybe it's less likely to make mistakes than it was 100 years ago when we knew some stuff, but a lot of things were still very new when you think about chemistry and so on? Sure. I, I, we know more, so I think we're much better at this. I, I guess what, uh, and I, there's one story about this in the book, I think where science can be dangerous in a sense is when it's used to sort of as a reason to express your worst prejudices. So that's one story in the book uh, about a very popular scientific treatise that was written uh, in the early 1900s by a, a New York City lawyer and conservationist named Madison Grant. He called it the passing of the great race. And what this book did was it took eugenics one step further. He tried to make the case that, that it wasn't just that characteristics could be passed from one family member to another, not physical characteristics, but other characteristics like loyalty or bravery or the likelihood to be a, a criminal, mm. but that, in fact, this was a phenomenon of races and that, that, that mm. were, there were superior races and inferior races. That book was ultimately translated into, into German, where it was essentially plagiarized by a young corporal who was imprisoned in Landsberg prison. He wrote a book to Madison, a letter to Madison Grant and said, this book is my Bible. And then he put whole sections of that book into his book, which he called My Struggle or Mein Kampf. And mm. um, he made the passing of the great race require reading when he came to power in the early 1930s in Germany. Right, so I think, right. you know, I, I think you could you could hear echoes of that today. Honestly, I think if, if you, for example, had some awful paper that was published claiming that they had identified the, the genetics of someone who was likely to be a murderer, or the genetics of someone who was likely to be a rapist, and that those genes were more likely expressed in people who were from Mexico, that there would be members of this administration who would, who would embrace it, even though obviously it would be wrong. There's a lot of bad science that's published, obviously, every day, because there's 4,000 papers that are published in the world's medical and scientific literature a day. So they follow a bell-shaped curve. Some are great, some are awful, most are more or less mediocre. But you can pretty much find a paper that claims anything. So we should be skeptical and, and wait for reproducibility. So uh, you have created, as you mentioned, a vaccine for rotavirus, which results in diarrhea and dehydration, um, particularly in kids in developing countries. I wonder what you did when you were developing that vaccine to try to figure out how you make this an unequivocal public health win, how to make sure you don't fall into any traps or, you know, make any mistakes. Well, you never know. Uh, you know, we did phase one and phase two and ultimately phase three trials. So we did a phase three trial, a prospective placebo-controlled 70,000-person, 11-country, four-year trial that, that cost about two hundred or $350 million to show that the vaccine was safe and effective. But that didn't prove that it was safe and effective. I think, you know, before the vaccine was then you know, licensed and given both in the United States and in the world. Um, and now hundreds of millions of doses have been given. You know, you don't know. And Maurice Hilleman, who I consider to be the father of modern vaccines and that he made nine of the 14 vaccines we currently give to our children, said it best. I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. And that was true here as well. You never know. Now, there are catchment systems in place like the Vaccine Safety Data Link to show if there really is any problem. And I think you know, now we've learned that there isn't. But you don't know. You don't know until you put it into a lot of people. And it's incredibly nerve-wracking. How long did the worry last for? Um, I would say the worry lasted for about five years. The vaccine was licensed and recommended in 2006. Now you're at hundreds of millions of doses. So I think you, you, can, you can relax. Right, right. You want the mountain of data to be an enormous mountain. Yes. No, people say that, you know, that your life sort of vacillates between moments of boredom and anxiety. Actually, you can have both at the same time. But mm. 
That's what I learned. How do you get the confidence to develop something that could be dangerous, that, that, you know, that, I mean, obviously has such potential, huge upsides, but, you know, does have these potential downsides? Well, I work in a hospital where, you know, prior to this vaccines uh, being licensed and used, you know, we'd see 400 children admitted a uh, winter with, with uh, you know, severe dehydration caused by this virus. I saw a child die of rotavirus when I was a resident. Mm. I mean, that's what you're working against. Right, you're trying right. to fight the virus, and right. you want to fight it in the most effective way possible. You don't want there to be side effects, but that, that's the motivator. Right. Paul Offit is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. He's also a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he's author of the new book, Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. If there's a question bothering your brain that you think you know how to explain, you need a test. Yeah, think up a test. If you liked this interview, take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes. Leaving a review actually helps more people find their way to Innovation Hub. So think of it as spreading interesting ideas one review at a time. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.